What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So last year, we published on Crafted a conversation with Blister reviewer Paul Forward about the art, ethics, and craftsmanship of traditional bows. And today, we're publishing the companion conversation to that episode, where our subject is, naturally, arrows. Now, we recorded this conversation right after Paul had returned from his annual hunting trip on Kodiak Island, so we talk a bit about that trip, provide a brief recap of Paul's personal hunting ethics, and then we dive into the art and the science of arrows. And on a related note, I want to point out that earlier this week, we posted over on our Blister podcast a broader conversation that Paul and I had about hunting and why we need to push for greater cooperation across the outdoor industry. So if you'd like to zoom out beyond the topics of bows and arrows and how they're made, then we'll include a link to that Blister podcast conversation in the show notes of this episode. Today's episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a collection of some of our favorite craft companies and some of the very best companies across a range of craft categories that support the independent work that we do here at Blister. One such company is Bravis Brewing Company, which was the first non-alcoholic brewery started in the United States, and today they're still making some of the very best NA beers we've ever had. You can learn more about Bravis and the rest of the Blister Craft Collective companies on our website. We'll include a link to the Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So check them out because we are confident that some of these companies are going to become some of your new favorite companies too. And now, let's talk about what goes into the craft of arrow making with Paul Forward. Here we go. Well, Paul Forward, you and I, just a couple days ago, had a really interesting conversation, I think, that we posted on our Blister podcast about some kind of broader issues in the kind of outdoor community. And people can go check that out if they're interested. Also, if they would like to hear your maybe top three ski movies ever. We (laughs) we talked about that. We showed a very weird video of your very weirdly damaged finger um so there's that so um yeah that 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 conversation had a little bit of everything going on but this conversation it's going to be a bit more focused some time ago we had you on to record a conversation about traditional bows and you know we called it an amateur hour and yet I don't know. From my point of view, it felt like a bit of a masterclass on bows. <laughs> and so I've been thinking a lot about for this episode on arrows, you know, the obvious follow-up episode, 
I was like, can we even really call this amateur hour anymore? I feel like you know too much to still have this being called amateur hour. What are your thoughts? No, I don't think so. I mean, I am a uh, a very passionate amateur. A very passionate amateur. Very passionate amateur hour. <laughs> that's that's the new title here. It's not nearly as catchy, but yeah, I I just I mean I, I like to get into the technical nitty gritty. Some some people um, would say I nerd out, but I hate that use of the term nerd, so I'm not going to use it. You hate the term nerd out? Hate it. Absolutely. Why? I don't it. think I know this about you. Oh, it's a humble brag. I nerd out about. You know, I'm such a nerd. Oh, I'm such a I'm such a ski nerd, such an aero nerd. That's it's a way. It's a, it's a humble brag. No, saying I'm such a nerd is. I could see how that's a bit of a humble brag, but just saying I nerd out just means I'm. I like to okay, get into the enough. details. Oh, I'll, yeah. I'll give you that. When used as a okay, fair enough. Nerd out, maybe not so much. But when people say everybody thinks I'm this amazing athlete, but really I'm a total nerd, that's a humble brag. That's saying everybody thinks I'm really good at sports, but I'm also super smart. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, there's not that many of us out there, Paul. And so we have to make sure. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Here is where I wanted to start this conversation about arrows. You just got back from a trip to Kodiak Island. You've told me a little bit about this, but not that much. What were you doing on Kodiak Island? Oh, every uh, every pretty much November, sometimes October too, or instead of I go uh, go down to Kodiak where I, I've spent a bit of time living and working also, and I. Uh, pursue Sitka black-tailed deer with my longbow and uh, that's some of the finest venison you'll ever eat and it's a really enjoyable place to roam around with the bow and um, oh, I love it. I get, um, I go by myself. I get dropped off by a friend with an airplane um, in a, one of the most remote parts of the island. I usually don't see a soul. Um, even where I go, I hardly even see much air traffic because I'm kind of off the, off the path, the flight path. And uh, you know, from where I camp in one direction, I just look out over the Pacific Ocean and all, you know, there's nothing, there's no land between me and Hawaii <laughs> in that direction. It's pretty cool out there. Um, and I always see um, Kodiak brown bears, some of the largest bears on North in North America. See them every day roaming around. They're super cool. It's like, you know, one of the last great symbols of wilderness in the world. Yeah. And uh, I just get to spend a bunch of time. And then also it's kind of cool because this time of year, there's only about eight hours of daylight, eight, nine hours of daylight. And I'm, I'm up mm. and hunting in the dark and then I, you know, I usually don't make it back to my tent until after dark, but, um, it just gives me a, it's like a really good, just like chill out time. You know, I get back to my tent every night in the dark, I make dinner and then I get to read books and I sleep for eight or nine hours a night. It's just like, I just look forward to it all year. It's just like my most <laughs> relaxing it's usually pretty weathery. Like I've definitely, you know, it probably my tent probably took some pretty sustained, like 40, 50 mile per hour winds a few times this year. It's just, and I got snow and I got rain, but that's normal for Kodiak. It's an island in the mm -hmm. middle of the Pacific, but uh, man, it's just a, it's just one of those places. It's probably, you know, one of those like handful of five or 10 spots in Alaska that I try to make a point of being, going, getting to every year. Hmm. I love it down there. I don't think I know this part. Have you had any serious Kodiak bear encounters? No, no. I mean, hardly anybody has. 
that's a it's a myth that people are always so worried about bears on Kodiak. But my understanding is that in you know a hundred years of um, you know for lack of a better term like recorded like white people history on Kodiak, <laughs> there's uh-huh. there has hasn't really been uh, a bear. Maybe there's been one bear related fatality. And, you know, people get every once in a while, like every year or two, somebody gets chewed on a little bit, somebody gets mauled and beat up a little bit by one. But, chewed um, on a little bit. Yeah. And, it's, and sometimes the injuries are pretty serious, but that's like, I mean, considering like how many thousands of hours people are out there and, you know, the primary form of recreation in remote Kodiak is hunting. So, which I think is from bear standpoints, higher risk, right? Because you're carrying around bloody meat. Uh, you know, and you're just around, you're around animal carcasses and you're being sneaky. And so I think that like, that's you hmm. people are, there's like thousands of people who go out there hunting every year and spend hundreds of hours out there. And I think it's a very low risk, uh, very low. Risk. Like I don't, I don't carry a gun. I like, you know, if, it, if it's not windy, I'll take a bear spray with me, but I really have very little. I mean, you think when you go to the, when you go to the dock or the, you know where the float plane people go take off to go out on their hunts you'd think that people are going to freaking iraq to war because they're like so stacked with guns everybody's got a pistol and everybody's got a rifle and hmm. i think there's just a lot of misunderstanding and paranoia about those bears down there like they those are well-fed bears they you know most of the time if they see you as soon as they know you're there they're running the other direction they're they're not i mean there's there's always going to be a nuisance bear around or once in a while and i mean for that reason i put like a little battery powered electric bear fence around my food tent and sometimes around my sleeping tent. But I don't, I don't have too much worry about them, honestly. So that's interesting though. So you, you don't carry a pistol or anything, even as a last ditch, you know, sometimes I have one and I've, I've spent a bunch of time learning to shoot effectively, but yeah, it weighs two or three pounds. And, um, Aaron probably won't, my wife won't listen to this, but I leave it in my tent a lot of the time because I don't feel like dragging it around with me. Um, but I do keep it, I do leave it in the tent. I mean, I might, my, the one situation I always wonder about is if eventually sometime, you know, a bear will come into the camp when I have meat hanging and, you know, try to give me a hard time. But I, I have a feeling that if I give the bear the meat, the problem's resolved and uh, no, no meat is valuable enough for me to either kill a bear, which I would never shoot a bear over my meat, which I think it's illegal anyway to shoot a bear over your meat. Hmm. And uh, I would just <laughs> you know, have all the meat he wants. I'll go get another one. Hmm. But um, uh, I, well, I do keep the gun in the tent for that reason. And, you know, every once in a while, I'm sure that, you know, for every how many thousand hours of camping on Kodiak, somebody's tent gets investigated by a bear probably. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's more to appease the wife. Like I would happily, happily camp out there with no gun. I would have no, I would have very little like, apprehension about that let's um talk a little bit about a thing that we talked about on the bow episode of crafted but just a little bit about your kind of own personal hunting ethic if people were paying attention uh they may be gleaned that you don't hunt with a gun um it's always and only with a bow is that right yeah, pretty much always only with it with like as you said earlier, traditional bow, which means um, for those less familiar with that, as we talked about in that podcast, traditional bow is basically a bow that's uh, essentially a a stick under tension from a string. Usually, they're made with a combination of wood, and then a lot of the ones now have like 
they're kind of built they're built just like a ski honestly they're like laminated with wood and fiberglass i don't have any bows right now that are have carbon in them um but it's basically built just like a ski it's like you know wood bamboo and fiberglass pushed into a press with some glue under heat takes a form and then the string stretches across it and it's a very simple muscle powered single shot weapon <laughs> mm-hmm. one of the things we talked about too in that conversation was part of the art it just means that you've got to get a lot closer um to an animal than if you were using a rifle and that makes it a lot trickier yeah i mean as much as i love archery for the sake of archery the whole point of bow hunting the way i do with the kind of bow that i use is because it forces it makes me have those encounters with animals that are really close and it's just awesome and you, you know you know like i've i think i probably said this on the other podcast but my view on fair chase hunting is that animals evolve for hundreds of thousands or millions of years to be afraid of things that can kill them or that can harm them at close range right like i have spent tons of time around moose and caribou and deer you know at 200 yards they're interested in what's going on, but they're not running away. Really, no animal is. At 100 yards, they're a little nervous, but they're still probably feeding and just keeping an eye on you. At 50 yards, which is like modern archery range for a lot of people, um, modern archery being like compound bows and trigger releases and that kind of stuff. Um, I'd say, you know, some animals are going to be running away, but a lot of times they're, they're, you know, they're nervous. They don't like it, but they're, you know, you figure a wolf or something at 50 yards is a, uh, potential threat but it's not an imminent threat and mm-hmm. if they ran away from every dangerous thing that was 50 yards away they'd wear themselves out and yeah. not get a lot of food depending on the situation um but the ranges where i am you know like the first deer i shot this year was uh, five yards you got to think that that the evolutionary process that got deer to be the very effective full-time professional prey animals that they are um that they don't like to be, they don't like when you're that close. So I think it's like, mm-hmm. it feels like you're really, A, it's just really enjoyable for me to be that close to them, whether I'm going to shoot one or not, whether it's an animal I want to get or not. I just really love those close encounters. I like, I like to hear them and even like smell them and just be, it's just so cool. And, and then B, it feels like, it feels kind of fair and right to me to hunt them on their terms as a part-time amateur predator hunting a full-time professional prey. okay um let's get into it let's talk about the art of arrows Mm. where do you want to start here do you want to start with sort of the history yeah i don't i've you know again i'm not an expert on all this stuff but um but so i don't don't even know how long ago people started using bows and arrows for hunting right i think it's because it's quite a few thousand years ago I, I want to say like 50,000 years ago. So I 50. think our species has existed as it, I think it's something like that. I could be totally off. Um, but I think it's probably about that long. Um, uh, you know, people, what, what human beings, homo sapiens are what? 200, 250,000 years in our current form. I think that's about right. You know. Okay. We're um, earning the, we are earning the amateur hour title. So I'm just going to be like, yeah, that seems like probably right. Yeah, I think that's right. right. I think it's something like that. And I don't, I'm totally that that's total. I hope somebody writes in the comments and tells us how long people have had bows, but I'm guessing it's like tens of thousands of years. Um, but, uh, 
you know, it was one of the early, aside from like spears and, and uh, spear throwers or atlatls as they're known in some places, it was one of the most, it's most, one of the most earliest and primitive weapons uh, out there. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of skill and I've, I've done a fair, like, well, I don't know exactly how far they go back. I, ha- I I was pretty obsessed for a while with like the different bow and arrow technology that different indigenous people are into and depends on what part of the world with the, what they're hunting, but it's pretty cool. Like there's people around the world that figured out ways to make composite bows or laminated bows, like tens of thousands of years ago, bows where they would like take, um, like sinew, like tendons from an animal and stretch it and dry it across to, to make it more powerful or durable. Um, or, um, they'd back it with other things like that to make it stronger, depending on like access to quality wood, but, you know, like a Nupiak Eskimos in Alaska, really the only wood they had was driftwood cause there's no trees up there. So they were making bows with whatever washed up from anywhere in the world. And then hmm. it's pretty cool. Um, so, so the bow is one part, right? And you gotta, you gotta build a bow that, um, pulls back evenly and provides a good cast and, you know, maintains its power. And then there's the arrow part, right? And, uh, you know, the arrow is, um, it's got a base. The job of the arrow is essentially to deliver the point. The point's what does the work when it comes to, uh, to killing an animal, put it bluntly. And, uh, arrows kill, arrows kill by hemorrhage, by, by causing bleeding. Hmm. Uh, whereas, um, bullets kill, um, by like shock trauma, like like shock energy is, is a big part of how a bullet, a bullet, a bullet will cause hemorrhage also, but a lot of the damage done by a bullet is from the hydrostatic shock of a projectile traveling that fast. Um, huh. It creates a lot of trauma like that because um, the bullet's traveling a couple thousand feet per second, um, whereas my arrows are traveling at 150 at most, probably 140 feet per second. And so um, an arrow kills um, by, by hemorrhage, by cutting, um, like cutting vital organs um interestingly uh i think it's probably a much my personal impression is it's probably much less painful and traumatic way to go i would if i had to choose between getting shot by a gun and shot by an arrow i would take the arrow every time um i've had animals uh multiple times where i've shot clean through an animal arrow which is usually the case the usually arrow just zips right through and uh the animal just goes back to feeding just goes back to doing what they were doing as long as they don't see me or or my my bow is nice and quiet, they don't feel a thing. They go back, they feed, they get a little bit dizzy, they lay down, and they don't get back up. I swear that has happened multiple times. People that have been shot by arrows inadvertently, like accidentally, like people, you know, that are, I think, like East Coast tree stand hunters where like, there's, like sometimes there's like somebody every 200 yards in the woods that have been accidentally shot. Um the reports I read is that most of them didn't know they were shot until they were like, huh, weird. There's an arrow sticking out of my jacket. And they reached down and they're like, huh, there's blood on my hand. And they pulled the shirt up and saw the arrow was, you know, had transversed their belly or something. So, um, it, I don't think it's a particularly painful, um, you know, that's by both people experiencing both anecdotally with animals. Don't think huh. it causes much pain. Um, it's very quick, you know, compared to any other way that a wild animal, dies i think it's extremely quick and painless right because your choices if you're a deer in the world your choices are starve to death get eaten alive by a predator or maybe you know freeze to death or something like that but those are pretty much your only ways out maybe disease Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i mean you're gonna die by violence or trauma in some way or another and i think that um 
you know, uh, that's a pretty good, like I said, if I had to choose between, uh, freezing to death, starving to death or getting eaten from my insides out by a predator while alive, I would go for the arrow every time. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty morbid thing to talk about. But so that's the that's the the function of the arrow is to deliver a broadhead. The broadhead is essentially a, a blade of some kind, a knife of some kind um, for big game animals. Small game animals you kill with with trauma because there's the vasculature is so small you don't rely on the hemorrhage part. Um, so small game animals use like a blunt that does create just like shock trauma. But for big game animals, you're going for the cutting and penetration. So you're delivering essentially like a knife blade. Um, we call it the term for it in archery is called a broadhead. And um, I don't know the, the etiology of that term, but um, there's lots of different kinds of broadheads. We can talk about that separately. But the function of the arrow when a hunting purpose is to deliver the broadhead effectively to the target. And Where so, are we going next? Well, so um, so we're talking about arrows. So there's there's so we probably should talk about the shaft of the arrow first, the components of the arrow, right? So yeah. traditionally, arrows were probably mostly made out of wood. Because that's what people had. That's what they had to work with. And it's mm-hmm. you can, you know, you probably go in the woods by your house someplace right now and you could probably find some some relatively long straight switches and you could potentially be able to shape those into an arrow shaft. And I think that's how the earliest arrows were. And for a long time, I hunted with wooden arrows too. They were like turned dowels, um, basically. Um, the, the science behind arrow building, the most important part of arrow building is the shaft in my opinion. And the most important part of the shaft is matching the flex of the shaft with the power of the bow and the power that the the force, when you let go of the string, the amount of force that's applied to the, the knock of the arrow is the little part where the string sits into. The part of the, the force that's applied by that string to the knock and to the shaft imparts flex on the arrow and then the arrow pushes down range. If the arrow shaft is too stiff, it will uh, it will push off, and it'll push off to the side because it the arrow can't isn't perfectly directly in line. Right, you have the bow, and the arrow is off to one side, so the arrow is kind of pointing like slightly off. You can hmm. kind of see what I'm doing with my finger. Mm-hmm. And so, if the arrow is too stiff, it'll fly off like this. If the arrow is too soft, it'll overflex and it'll fly off the other direction. And so, having it so that the arrow flexes just the right amount that it fully flexes, then recovers, and then oscillates back and forth. And so, um, like this this film project I was just part of, um, we used uh, phantom cameras, ultra slow motion phantom cameras, like the kind that you see, you know, when they like shoot a bullet yeah. through an apple. We yeah. had one of those shooting like crazy high speeds. And uh, they we spent a whole couple of days just shooting over and over again with me releasing arrows. And I'll, I can send you the video, but... yeah. It like it wobbles it, it fishtails and wobbles its way down range. And you can even see right when it releases on the shot from the front of the bow, you can watch the arrow curve around the bow from the front because the photographer, the filmer was like right there in front of me next to the point. And it's pretty crazy um, to, to watch it. It's a pretty wild thing to see from like a, from a physics standpoint. It's pretty interesting. Part of the formulation there is not just the stiffness, but if you think about it, when that arrow, when the string is being applied to the shaft, the other thing the shaft is doing is it's moving whatever it's carrying, in this case, the broadhead. And the broadhead has mass, right? So it takes force to overcome the, to basically create 
I'm going to use the wrong, I should have done a physics refresher before this, but you basically <laughs> need to like move that broadhead. And so before the broadhead moves, the arrow is going to flex. And so if you have a, if you imagine if you have like a really, really heavy arrowhead, you're going to need a much stiffer shaft or you're just going to overflex the shaft before you move that head down range. Hmm. So when you're figuring out your the shaft for your particular setup, you need to do it all with all those factors taken into account. So you need to make sure the shaft is stiff enough, but not too stiff for whatever broadhead. And if you, we measure our weights of broadheads or arrow stuff in grains. And so grains? if the, yeah, grains. And I, I, I can't remember how, what, a, how many grains there are or I can Google it. How many grains are in an ounce? I just learned a new metric of measurement. One gram is 15.43 grains. And so, um, so, you know, everybody knows grams. And so, and we all know there's 30, th- roughly 30 grams in an ounce, right? So, um, so we measure it in grains. So bullets are measured in grains also. So for, pe- for people that are into firearm stuff, bullets are measured, measured in grains. Um, this maybe it's just a ballistics thing, but, um, so I shoot really heavy. When we talk about this in a second, I shoot really heavy points, really heavy broadheads. Um, and so I need a stiff shaft in order to accommodate that. Uh, and I shoot a heavy bow and I have a long draw length. Huh. So I need, and that's why I actually stopped. Part of the reason why I stopped using wood and arrows because the, the amount of weight I want to deliver and the, you know, and you can think of the metal, the broadheads are made of metal. The, to have like really high integrity so that if it does hit like a bone or something, um, mm-hmm. that it doesn't bend or flex or change its shape because you want it to, to maintain integrity for ultimate, ultimate performance. Um, you want it, there's a lot, you gotta have a lot of metal there. And so they're heavy. So that's how you pick your shaft. I'll talk about the, some more factors there in a second, but there's basically two materials, three materials that arrow shafts come in. Uh, wood, as I mentioned, traditional, I shot for many years. Aluminum, which um, is a newer technology, obviously, but also goes back like at least 50 years. Um, those have been available probably more. And then probably in the last 30 years, and especially in the last 10 or 20 years, carbon fiber, just like every freaking outdoor sport, yeah. has has really taken over. And I shoot carbons. It's not the most traditional thing, um, but uh, they are more durable, and I can shoot um, – I can get the broadhead that I want delivered a lot more effectively. And to me, the reason I hunt with a traditional bow isn't to like adhere to some ancient ethos. It's basically to, to, for the the fair chase part that I commented on earlier. And so to me, the bow itself limits my range enough that I feel like it's fair chase. And then I feel like I owe it to the animal to use the most effective, like terminal performance arrow possible. And for me, that just requires with, with my size and the arrows I like and my the power bow I use it requires me to use carbon. Um, and I think I get a, I get better terminal performance like that. They're also way more durable for my like multi-week wilderness hunts where it's getting like rainy all the time. Cause like wooden arrows, mm-hmm. you get one ding in the lacquer. And I used to, I, I make my own wooden arrows. I, I like, I, huh. I, I sand them, I dip them in lacquer, I paint them, I fletch, put the feathers on. And even like, painstaking care to waterproof them they get a ding in them and then it rains for four days straight and the arrow starts to deform a little bit or the flex mm-hmm. changes and carbon isn't susceptible to that so i usually choose i've been choosing carbon shafts um for for a long time for probably the last 10 years i've been just using carbon shafts and when did 
carbon arrows really become a thing? Was it sort of around the same time that carbon was becoming a big deal in mountain bikes and in skis, which I guess I'd yeah, put probably. around. I mean, I mean it's much like simpler technology. It's just tubes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause like the, as far as I know, the earliest carbon fiber mountain bikes were, were just carbon pre prepreg or pre-made tubes with gussets or brackets basically at like the headset and the, mm-hmm. you know, at the various joints. And I, so I think the carbon arrows predate, uh, to me anyway, like, I mean, carbon skis, that was probably like, you know, when was DB skis? That was the first, and Goody skis, those were like early 2000s, yeah. Yeah. like 2004, 2002, 2004. Mm-hmm. I think carbon arrow shafts were around at least 10 or 20 years before that. Um, okay. They haven't changed that much as far as I get, as I, as far as I understand it. Um, How significant was that development? So like in skis, right, when we started putting rocker profiles, tip rocker, tail rocker on skis. I mean, that, I think that's still the shape is the single biggest development in ski design and ski manufacturing. And yeah, like we now can use materials that make skis a lot lighter than they used to be, especially, you know, useful if you're skinning, touring long distances, but like when arrows went from being either wood or aluminum to then this jump to carbon fiber for the for the shafts, was that this game changing thing no, or a more subtle? Barely at all. Like for me, it's okay. like it's so subtle. I mean, it it doesn't really change anything about what I'm doing. If I had been hunting on this last time with wooden arrows, I would have had the exact same experience. You know, I just would have had to be a little more careful in the wet weather with the shafts. Um, you know, it does. The only thing for me, it allows me to shoot a little bit heavier head with a, with the heavy bow that I like. Um, so, I, you know, I think that I like to shoot the most poundage possible that I can comfortably hunt with just for, again, better terminal performance, better making sure that I make the cleanest, quickest kills possible. But no, at pretty minimal. I'd be fine if I, if you if you're like, there's no more carbon arrow shafts, you have to hunt with wood for the rest of your life. Fine. I would, it would mm-hmm. be have almost no effect on my overall experience for, for the modern, like modern uh, archery, like with the compound bows, though they couldn't shoot wood there. Uh, the imparts too much force. I don't think there's wood shafts stiff enough. Um, I mean, with the lighter bows maybe, but with like, you know, I think like the average compound shooter, like adult male is shooting like a 70 pound bow and they have so much mechanical advantage that they're imparting, you know, like, two or three times as much force on the arrow as I am. Huh. And so I don't think, I think carbon shafts are essential for what those guys are doing and gals are doing. Um, and by the way, like just because you're make, shooting an arrow super fast, doesn't, it actually uh, does not mean you're getting better terminal arrow performance, S- slower, more effective arrows, slower, better designed arrows penetrate better and cause or are more effective in killing animals than super fast light arrows. So slower arrows versus faster arrows. Would you, yeah, like, um, yeah, so it's, this is, again, it's kind of a physics thing, but um, it has to do with momentum more than anything. Um, a heavier, heavier projectile has a lot more momentum, and momentum is where you get penetration. Um, you also... Um, 
you start to lose penetration with real high speeds because it, the faster you're going, the more friction becomes a factor. You're you're better off with a heavy slow project, heavy slow arrow than a fast light arrow, essentially. Hmm. You know, like uh, get hit with a ping pong ball at like you know 100 miles per hour does a lot less damage than getting hit by uh, a 10 pound bowling ball at uh, a cap fraction of the speed. You know. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Wow, we really are like just in physics, like freshman year, like like low grade level physics uh, class. Yeah, I mean, as I recall, I mean, you might get in the weeds a little bit. As I recall, when you're calculating friction, velocity is squared in the friction calculation. And so you actually have a uh, uh, exponential increase in friction with your your speed. So, again, the reason why it's a little slower, heavier is better. Um, So, huh. Um, so, I mean, I, like, for example, like I shoot all the way through every animal I shoot pretty much, um, which is, you know, beneficial for me. And from like an ethics standpoint, I think for the animal, you know, it makes a cleaner, faster, um, uh, death. And every time I see some picture or video of somebody shooting a modern bow, the arrow is like sticking out of it this far and then it doesn't go through. I think it's cause they're shooting partly cause they're shooting poor broad, bad broadheads, but partly because, mm. They're shooting too light of arrows. Hmm. So you think this is something that maybe a number of hunters aren't very dialed in on? The like, hey, um, you would probably be better yeah. off, and the animal would be better off if you were using a heavier arrow, slower arrow. Um, I mean, heavier and fast is great too, but you can only pull so much poundage. You can only you can only apply so much force because you're limited you by your can own only physical. You can only no, <laughs> no, no you yeah, you'd probably be pulling a hundred pound bow if you were doing this, right? Because I'm an athlete and a nerd, right? We established that in the first yeah first uh, the, at right. the top of this conversation, right? right, right. Um, Everybody thinks you're an elite athlete, but but you're a total nerd. A total nerd, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so. So we still need to talk about the feathers and we still need to talk about the broadheads here. Are totally. we done with the shaft, wood, aluminum, and carbon? Yeah, let's back up on the weight slightly for a second since we're already on that topic. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to get do too much of a deep dive here, but um, you said people would benefit from knowing that. Um, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when I first, I guess 30 years ago, I first started, I shot my yeah, I shot my first big game animal with a recurve bow when I was twelve, so it's thirty-two years ago. I was I was a uh, I was really into this stuff, even as like a even at that age, I was reading about this stuff. And um, traditional bow hunter magazine, traditional bow hunter magazine, which was a great magazine, still exists, and they had articles in there from this guy named Ed Ashby. Anybody who bow hunts is is probably either rolling their eyes right now or nodding their head because. People are sick of hearing about this guy. But then he was brand new. People didn't really know about this guy until about 10 years ago, huh. maybe 15 years ago when he kind of became more popular. But he was this, um, uh, or is, he's still alive. Uh, he was, I think he was like an optometrist by profession, but he worked in the army. Long story short, he had an opportunity to go to Africa. He was really passionate about bow hunting and terminal uh, projectile performance, whether it was arrows or bullets. But he had an opportunity to go to Africa 
and shoot hundreds and hundreds of large, heavy boned animals with bows with the bow and arrow. And he was a scientist or is a scientist and he approached it with a pretty scientific uh, method and he would change variables and see how he did. And he would, you know, freshly kill the animals. He'd have them stood up and he'd shoot a bunch of arrows through them and he'd do it. And he did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals like this because he was part of various like calls for various types of processes, projects. And he determined like 12 major factors of arrow performance. Hmm. At the end of the day, Ashby's stuff, was was really soft that created there people will poke holes in a little bit and there's some there's some debate about some of his conclusions but the big picture is is that um he determined factors that lead to better arrow performance meaning better performance on animals less lost animals less wounded animals more clean efficient painless ethical kills basically which is what we all want as hunters and um one of the things he determined was that, you know, the heavier arrows worked far better, that having most of the mass of the arrow toward the front, I can talk about that in a second, was beneficial for many things. But the most important things really were the integrity of the front of the arrow. So the, the fact that things didn't get br- broken or bent upon impact, because you can imagine if the broadhead gets bent sideways, yeah. all that energy that's just going to, yeah. it's going to get diverted or not work well. And uh, basically, that the arrow is flying straight, and the arrow flying straight goes back to that first thing I talked about. We use the term tuning to make sure you match the arrow to the broadhead to the bow. And so, basically, you want because if your arrows, if you hit the animal with the arrow going sideways, that's also not a very good way to impart that force if it's hitting it at an angle, right? You want it to hit it straight and travel in a straight line, which seems obvious, but arrows don't always fly that way if they're not tuned correctly. So. He determined a bunch of factors and that has become definitely more mainstream and more accepted. There's some pushback but from it in certain parts of the community as far as I can tell. But I think in general, like my friends, one of my good friends is a, is a, his primary job is as a hunting guide on Kodiak for the world's largest bears. And he specializes in taking bow hunters and uh, he, he'll just tell people outright, like you're coming with a basically an Ashby type arrow or you're not coming. Because he doesn't want to deal with wounded bears. He wants them to have, and he's, he's, you know, guided many, many, many bow hunters on giant bears and other animals. And he's like, that's just what works way better. So it's a real thing. And so, um, yeah, so that's like the big picture. That's again, emphasize what you're trying to do is create a really effective projectile. It's going to travel through the animal, create the trauma and hemorrhage that you want. And, uh, uh, allow for like a very ethical clean kill kind of morbid but that's that's the bottom line so mm-hmm. on the back end of the arrow the arrow the, the thing that helps uh stabilize the flight is the feathers right and um you can either use true feathers which are made from real turkey feathers which um you know come from turkey farms primarily i have a source for getting wild turkey feathers which think are a little better because they have more of the natural oils intact and they stay they do better in the in the wet hmm. um from like wild turkeys um but uh they're i prefer real turkey feathers for lots of reasons they're a little bit lighter they um they're quieter they i think the alternative being like stiff plastic or rubber veins that get mounted on the arrows um th- those are a little better they they'll hold it better in wet weather but um when my wife shot her first big game animal this summer 
she was using plastic veins and a modern bow because she can't she can't draw a traditional bow. And with the arrows we just had for her for that, we had plastic veins. And when the arrow exited the caribou, it passed all the way through. It actually got hung up on the plastic veins on the exit wound, which told which it was really interesting for me to see. I'd never heard of that before, but to me that says all oh, those veins are are interfering with penetration. And so um, I'll set her up. I'll make her next set of arrows with feathers. Huh. Interesting. For next year. Um, and then, and then, you know, some, you can use three, two, two feathers or three feathers or four. I prefer four. It, um, I do four at 90 degrees. I think that's a nice setup. I use little tiny feathers. I, I think they, there's been some, some studies done that show that they stabilize the flight of the arrow better. And then when they get wet, they're less likely to interfere with the overall flight. And so I use four really some four, like two inch feathers that I, um, that I hand burn into the shape that I like with a piece of uh, super hot wire and I, that burns the feathers and I just turn it through that wire and it cuts them to just the shape that I like um, after I glue them on there. With a little so are there big, are there big debates about, Oh, this is why we prefer one school prefers two feathers. One school prefers three, one school prefers four. Does this basically just, mirror pretty well our thoughts on like touring ski touring bindings where it's like nobody's maybe really wrong but it just kind of depends on what you prioritize or something so so a couple years ago a guy in pennsylvania did about he got a shooting machine which is basically like it takes all the human factor out of it you just put the bow in the Mm. machine it pulls it back and you push a button and it lets the string go and um he did a bunch of tests with different feather profiles that being that the only variable that he changed and he was primarily looking at effects on speed, accuracy, and then how well, how much they got interfered with, A, if they got really wet, and B, in particular, if they were dealing with crosswinds. Because you can imagine, like, the, yeah. the feathers stabilize the flight of the arrow and steer it, but then if you have giant feathers on there, they're going to get blown around more too, right? And uh, he found that consistently the, that small, small four-fletch is a better setup. Which is interesting because that's actually what Ashby was advocating. Um, he, for a while, he was advocating for really big feathers because he said they stabilize the broadhead better. But he came around pretty early to like using small little like, mm-hmm. uh, call them like rocket fins, like little tiny, tiny feathers. And uh, this this guy's um, data supported that, mm-hmm. that that seems to be the best setup. So, that's why I use it. That's why I like those. And I also like it because the traditional setup is, is three. And with three, um, because it's asymmetrical, you have to like, con- like, like with the traditional bow, you have to make sure the right feathers in the right place when you put it on the knot on the string. And with four, it doesn't matter. You just grab the arrow blindly and put it on the string. It's the same either mm-hmm. side, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I like four for for that reason. Hmm. I think they look cool too. And I always use pink, <laughs> always pink feathers. Always pink feathers, just. Always in the way pink. that like pink skis are cool. I, I mean, I was using pink feathers before pink skis are cool, Jonathan. Huh. I like, I just like how they look. They show up nice. They look, they look good. And they, sh- and I can, I can track them with my eye in flight. Sometimes I splice different colors. I get a little artistic with it. Hmm. Um, the other thing I do too, just cause I like enjoy it is I, um, I take my arrow shafts, um, and I dip them in, uh, what's called like a, a crest dip of paint. So I'll dip like the top seven or eight or 10 inches in a paint tube. 
And then um, when that paint dries, I'll put another coat on there or so, and I use different colors. And then I'll put them in a little a machine that spins the shaft. And then I'll use a pinstriper and I'll, I'll pinstripe them and put my own little special pattern on there. Paint them just how I like them. You have like the Paul Forward logo? No, no logo. I change it every each time. But I, I okay. one of my rituals before I go hunting is like each season or sometimes each hunt, I'll make like a special set that are just, and it's just kind of my way of like, I don't know. It's like my little ritual, my little process mm -hmm. before I go hunting. It's like part of my, mm -hmm. I don't know, connects me to my, my uh, ancestral roots. <sighs> Pre-hunt rituals. Are we ready to go to broadheads? Yep. So the broadhead is the whole point of the bow and the arrow is to deliver the broadhead to the animal, right? That's what we're doing. And so, um, you know, traditionally the earliest broadheads, we've all seen arrowheads. We've all seen like, you know, Native American or Alaskan Native arrowheads. And um, those are still like really good technology. I mean, hmm. we, have, we don't have anything that's that much better than what those guys and gals were making. Uh, they were using flint or obsidian. You know, obsidian holds a finer edge than almost any material on earth. It huh. can be uh, a skilled a skilled arrowhead maker. They call it napping. Um, napping is the act of creating of creating uh, basically a tool out of out of um, stone. And it involves like uh, focused pressure using like a piece of antler or bone or wood or stone in some cases to like pr basically pressure flake uh the the arrowhead into its shape and um i played i've tried it a little bit it's really hard um it's like a it's a really really tough skill to figure out i think but um you can make obsidian you know surgically sharp if you know what you're doing like incredibly sharp huh and uh i don't think we probably have anything these days it's like that much better than a well-crafted obsidian head those are hard to come by and they're not super durable. Like I can't target practice with one. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, so most of the time we're hunting with, or I'm hunting with, um, steel broadheads, um, made out of different types of steel. And, um, I think a good, I, you know, I think a hard, uh, are you familiar with like the Rockwell grading for like steel hardness, metal hardness? Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, the just like with a knife or something else, like the harder the steel is, the harder it's to sharpen, but the more durable it is. And then there's like mm -hmm. there's toughness also with like, you know, some steels when they get really hard, they lose toughness, um, so they can chip or or break. And so, um, and then you also like if you're using like super high end stainless steel, for example, they I would think that would be like cost prohibitive. You know, like this kind of steel that you make a three hundred dollar knife out of, you're not gonna like make arrowheads out of that probably. Yeah. And so, um, uh, I'm kind of, I, it seems like most of the best arrow manufacturers are using like some high end tool steels. Um, not usually stainless. I have used some stainless steel broadheads, which are great, but, um, but they're more expensive and I don't feel like it's necessary as long as I put something on them to keep them from rusting. Hmm. But, uh, so you're looking at a steel broadhead and, uh, the, my preference is for either a broadhead that is two blades, so just like the traditional arrowhead, or in some cases, um, three blades if the arrow is designed, if the hair is designed correctly. And the Ashby studies suggested that a ratio of three times as long to one times the width is the ultimate for mechanical advantage for penetration. So three inches long, one inch wide, two blade head. 
And he also advocated for what are called single bevel broadheads. I need like a prop to demonstrate this, but like most knives have a bevel like this, right? You sharp, you sharpen one side, you sharpen the other side, you sharpen the two sides of the knife and you have a bevel. A uh, single bevel would be like if you started and the knife only had a bevel on one, you only sharpened one side of the knife and like some fillet knives are built like that. So they, hmm. so they track well against the spine of a fish when you're filleting a fish, there's single bevel fillet knives. The thing with a single bevel broadhead is if the if the bevels are offset to each other, it creates a natural corkscrewing motion when it encounters um, resistance, so you know flesh or something like that. And so the wound ends up being a lot bigger and it has a natural corkscrewing and twisting motion, which creates mechanical advantage both through soft tissue and a splitting torquing motion if it encounters bone. So um, if I shoot two blade heads, I'm usually using a single bevel head to take advantage of that effect. There's a couple three blade heads in the market, one in particular that I really like that just flies super well and I think has a similar mechanical advantage. I've been using those a lot. Um, and it also has a design that more makes the front of the arrow a little bit stronger. So I've kind of leaned toward using those in recent years. Um, but to me, any like really well-designed two or three blade head is a great choice. The One of the things that came out of like the high-performance compound bows was um mechanical broadheads meaning that they uh they change shape upon impact hmm. so and that came about mainly because in my opinion this is being a little bit um a little cynical but because people were bad at tuning their bows and when you have when you put a blade on the front you also you, you know if, if it's not tuned right it's going to exaggerate the, the bad tune because you put a wing on the front basically so if the arrow is flying wonky, it's going to fly really wonky with with a big old blade on the front. But if you are only shooting essentially like a little field point, like a bullet shaped thing that then has blades that open up when it hits resistance, it makes it allows for people that don't have very well tuned bows to still have good accuracy. And so um, a lot of people swear they need it for shooting long distances. And I think, well, just get closer. Don't don't shoot so far away. But those are. Uh, in every bit of testing I've ever seen from Ashby and others, they are terrible when it comes to terminal performance. I think that's why a lot of the times you see like some person with a 70 pound bow shooting a hundred pound deer and the arrow only sticks in six inches. Huh. Um, whereas there's enough energy there, you should be blowing, you could, should be able to blow through three deer and they shoot this crappy expandable broadhead and it smacks into it. And, you know, plenty of people kill plenty of animals. And I'm sure if anybody listens to this, Somebody's going to write that they are just killed everything under the sun, including an elephant with an expandable broadhead. But I have dug broadheads out of animals that have been shot that have survived that were, and they were all those like shitty expandable broadheads that, huh. just, you know, hit something and only went in this far and the animal lived forever. And, and where is the, whatever the community on these, like our mechanical arrows, gaining traction in the market or it's still like a very niche oh, thing I th i'd say it's no no the mechanicals like took over like i say most compound shooters have only shot mechanicals for quite oh. a while now and i think the pendulum's swimming back toward fixed blade heads now because of the concerns that the mechanicals don't have as good terminal performance and mm -hmm. because of the realization that people just need to tune their bows better so like my buddies that hunt are hunting guides a lot of them will especially in alaska are just like won't We'll just tell people flat out, like, don't show up here with mechanical heads. Huh. You can't take, they'll let people hunt, hunt deer with them, but they won't like blacktails. But 
I think a lot of guides would probably push back pretty hard if somebody showed up with McKinney. My buddy was flat out no for bears. And I think he's pretty close to a no for mountain goats. Um, and I think like you'd have a lot of people that would probably raise an eyebrow if you showed up for a moose hunt with mechanical broadheads. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say that plenty of people have had great success shooting those animals with mechanical heads, but you know, you don't plan for when things go right. You plan, you set up your gear for when things go wrong. <laughs> so you just want the optimal, optimal terminal performance. And that is not mechanical heads. They're, they're only optimized for arrow flight. What's the price range on arrows? Uh, I'd say carbon shafting, if you're buying just the shafts or anywhere from probably $5 an arrow, a shaft is about as cheap as you're going to get. And uh, then they can be up to like $30 a shaft, $20 or $30 a shaft. It's probably the range somewhere in there. So $30 is really pushing it in terms of like, quote unquote, really expensive arrows. Per shaft, yeah. And I, I think like, sh- I don't, like the, that, those are like, those would be like match grade, you know, like competition shafts that would be 20 or $30 a shaft. So that's just talking about the shaft. I was kind of asking the question about the whole oh, feathers, so, shaft. Yeah. So um, feathers right. are cheap, you know, feathers, you can buy like a hundred feathers for, you know, 30 bucks or something like that. Uh, broadheads really de- runs the whole gamut. Um, mm-hmm. The heads that I really like, are about $45 a head. And so I justify it by saying I want the best possible performance and I'm willing to, you know, it costs me a ton of money to get to where I'm going hunting a lot of the times. I'm taking all this time off work and I'm only going to shoot a couple Mm -hmm. per year. And to me, the most important thing is having a really ethical, painless kill for the animal. And so I'm willing to like just eat that cost basically. And if I, if I end up shooting half a dozen heads per year, I just eat yeah. that cost. Most years I shoot, you know, I shoot three or four animals and that means three or four heads and I get them back a lot of the time and just sharpen them up and reuse them. But, uh, but you can, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure you can go to, you know, Cabela's right now and buy a half dozen broadheads for 30 bucks. So there's this big spectrum there. The ones I'm shooting are probably some of the most expensive ones you can buy. At $45. Per head. Yeah. Yeah. Plus a $30 shaft. The shafts I'm shooting are like $15 per okay. shaft or so. So yeah, but this that's true. Sounds, like every this, time I shoot it. This all sounds really cheap every time compared I, to like skis and mountain bikes. Oh yeah. I mean, the bows are kind of expensive, but no, archery is not an expensive hobby. Like, and, and you know, with the arrows, unless you lose them, unless you, you know, lose them out in the yeah. tundra or you break them, they're, they're, they're pretty darn durable. Like I... You know, shoot, I shoot the arrows I own hundreds of times before something happens to them. Like, it's cheap. Hmm. Like, I got a ton of arrows downstairs. Like, I have my son's arrows, my wife's arrows, and my arrows. And hmm. we, we, we shoot all the time. We don't, we don't go through that many. <laughs> hmm. not, it's not an expensive hobby. So, you kind of answered this, but to, to kind of try to button it up in one spot. If I were to ask you what matters most when it comes to making a good arrow versus a less good arrow, again, I think we've been talking sort of around some of the elements, but sum that up for us. So, and by good, I'm going to say, for me, the definition of good is um, terminal performance on big game animals. That's what I'm looking yep. for. Alt- and for me, terminal performance means penetration, penetration and, and, and inducing hemorrhage. And so... The factors would be 
high structural integrity at the broadhead in the front of the arrow. So a tough, like a really well-made durable head that's not going to get damaged. The interface between the head and the shaft also has to be really robust so that doesn't bend or tweak upon impact. And then the only other thing that really matters besides that, the, the broadhead itself and the integrity of the front of the arrow is the, is the matching the arrow correctly to the bow yeah. so that you have really good flight. You get bonus points if, the, if most of the mass of the arrow is at the front because it flies better. Um, if you think about it, like, um, like, like airplanes that are built for, for smooth, stable flying, like jetliners, are, are, in my understanding, is their weight forward. A lot of them, the mass is toward the front of the airplane. Hmm. Airplanes that are designed for high maneuverability, like jet fighters, the mass is in the middle, but they require like really complex computer systems to even be able to like fly in a straight line. So like if you think about it, like, you know, if you were going to go make a spear, you're going to go throw a stick that was tapered, which end would you put in the front, the heavy end or the light end? The heavy yeah, end, right? Heavy it's going to fly yeah. way better. Yeah. yeah. And so um, you can also imagine like if the, so there's going to be a balance point. So that if my finger is the arrow, if the balance point is right here and it gets interfered with whether it's wind or hits a branch, it's wobbling right here. The broadhead's right here. The broadhead's not deviating very much in its path. If the balance point is, because right, when you get interfered with it, it's going to wobble at its balance point. If it gets interfered with and the balance point is in the middle, the wobble at the front of the arrow is dramatically more than it than it would be if the wobble point is right here, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you get better flight characteristics and better downrange performance when you have as much of the mass as possible toward the front. So I designed my arrows to have the hip to, to when I'm figuring out like roughly how many grains total I want for my bow, um, for my arrow, which I shoot about, I sh aim for around 10 grains per pound. I shoot 60 pounds. I aim for about 600 grain arrow. Um, I want like three or 400 of those grains, 300 of those grains at least to be in the front and then a light shaft and some light feathers to, to make up the rest of it. That's a good arrow. All right. That's a good arrow. One of the things I'm kind of noticing when we talked about bows, we talked quite a bit about the kind of, you know, artisan bow makers. We really haven't, you haven't talked about that at all with respect to arrows. You know, um, you talked about some of your favorite bow makers. What, what was the title? Mm -hmm. It was, uh, Bowers, we call them Tolkien. Oh, Bowyers, yeah, Bowyers. Bowyers. B O W Y E R S. Yeah, Bowyers. Yep. Bowyers. People who make bows. Yeah. But I haven't yep. heard you say anything about, you know, um, in in the bow hunting community, if there are these, you know, sort of hallowed arrow makers, is that a thing? Oh, there's a few people out there making arrows, but so the vast majority of people just buy pre pre-made pre-built arrows, like from a shop, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or they buy them like pre-packaged ready to go from the manufacturer. Um, I like, there's people like me who like to build their arrows themselves, but for the most part, whether I'm making them, whether people that are really passionate about archery who are probably making their own arrows and in which case they're buying the components and doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. So and I like having like, total control over the process. I, I enjoy the ritual. I enjoy the process. I enjoy the art. Like, not that there's that much artistic 
aspect to it, but it was a little bit when I'm painting them and matching up the feathers and splicing them. So I enjoy all that. And I think a lot of people, there's I'm probably not the only one that enjoys that. Hmm. Okay. So when it comes to the art and the artisanal builders, less of a thing when it comes to arrows they're, as they're, opposed they're to They're out bows. there. They're out there, but yeah, like it takes a lot of knowledge and equipment and time and experience to build bows. Um, and I think there's only a few people out there that like really do it well. I think that arrows, like I could, if, if you were at my house right now and we went out to the garage, I could have you building arrows in, in a couple hours. You could be building like huh. totally, totally decent arrows. It's not, huh. it's not like there's any like dark art to, to gluing feathers on a shaft using a jig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess my one of my last questions, and I you've I think maybe I know a part of this answer, but was thinking about sort of, you know, we talked for in the ski world, beginner skis, you know, skis that are great for people who've never done this or you know have not just skied much at all, versus mm-hmm. skis that are better suited for experts. How do we think about this in the arrow world, like beginner arrows versus expert arrows? Is that a thing? Mm. No, only only just in like costs. Um, but um, I thought you were going to say not weight, really. But you went you went cost, not weight. Yeah. yeah, no, you can make a light, cheap arrow or a light. I mean, the you know for hunting arrows, the all that really matters in archery, right? Like is that is ultimately that you're shooting consistently accurately. So that it's getting, you're delivering the broadhead to the right spot every time yeah. and that you're shooting and that the right broadhead is flying. So to me, like, it's not like, Oh, when you're starting, you need like, you can get away with this crappy stuff. You should just, you should get, I mean, it's, it's our, our obligation to the animals we're hunting to hunt with the most effective, you know, like, terminal projectiles we possibly can right if you're rifle hunting you should be hunting with the bullet that has the most like you know the best best possible terminal performance for the animal you're hunting same thing with a gun or the with a bow you should be if you're starting out just get really good broadheads because you owe it to the animal to have really good performance um and then as far as how the arrow gets there i mean i shoot i have in my garage i have a bunch of arrows that are about the cheapest shafts you can buy and a bunch of them that are among the more expensive. And I typically hunt with the more expensive ones just because they end up being a little bit, the, the, I, some of the lighter ones I like that I can use a heavier head and a lighter shaft, yeah. but it's really all the same. Like I've killed tons of animals with like basically bargain, the, the cheapest carbon shafts you can buy or, and wood shafts are even cheaper. And I've killed tons of stuff with wood shafts too. Hmm. So, uh, the, you know, the hardest thing when you're getting into it, is that where and where there is a little bit, especially with traditional bows, where there's a little bit of voodoo and dark art, is the tuning part, is getting it, getting the arrow matched correctly to the bow. And there are so many factors involved in that. But the most important one is making sure before you do that, you have consistent form and a consistent shot. Because you can imagine, you know, on a long bow, for example, like mine, every inch, once I get to a certain point in the draw cycle, like the last four or five inches of the draw cycle, I'm gaining about three pounds of power per inch, right? And so you can imagine, like, let's say I draw 29 inches or tw- or 30 inches. If some shots I draw 28, other shots I draw 29, then I draw 
you know, over pull and I'm at 31 and then, oh, I'm all crunched up. I drew 27. You can imagine that like that inconsistency, as I've said, you know, you're trying to very precisely match the shaft to the bow. Um, not to mention like the trajectory aspect of it. You know, the fact that the arrow is going to fall off quicker with less power. Uh, no matter how good a setup you have, if your shot's inconsistent and you don't have good form, you're yeah. gonna, you're lo- you're leaving a lot on the field performance-wise. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, if you have a consistent shot, you have good form, you're shooting the same thing every time, you can shoot those $5 arrows and you can kill any animal in North America with a decent head on a $5 carbon chap. No problem. Well, hey, man. Um, I should let you get going here, but any final thoughts on the art and science of arrows to complete our bow conversation and now our arrows companion conversation? Oh, I mean, I touched on this a lot on the archery podcast before. Archery is a really cool hobby. It's a really cool pastime. And uh, for so many reasons, uh, you know, it's a great kind of, for me, it's like my form of meditation, right? And uh, I think for people that are interested in that kind of like technical type stuff, playing with bows and arrows is a really, is also, mm. it's like really fun and kind of uh, intellectually satisfying to build mm. up an arrow. And then there's the artistic side, you, wanna, you know, you can match your colors and paints and all that kind of stuff. And um I think it's a really, it's, I think for those who are, you're curious about it as a hobby, um, I think it's, I'd say go for it. It's really fun. And uh, building up arrows, don't, don't be intimidated by it and don't be intimidated by the guy at the shop, like who's telling you that, yeah, you know, I, I just got into a lot of weird technical stuff about this, but um, simplicity is good. You know, the old school stuff is good. The, the best technology for arrows, you know, a good two blade broadhead and a well-balanced shaft has been around for thousands of years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it hasn't, the best stuff now is pretty much the same as the best stuff 50 years ago. And it's not that different from the best stuff a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And so um, don't be, inti- don't be too intimidated by it. Uh, enjoy the art and process and the, and the, there's something uh, I'm kind of at a loss for words here, but, there is something like beautiful and romantic about watching your arrow take flight and fly down range, which is why if you use pink feathers, you'll be able to see that and enjoy it even more. Higher visibility. It all makes sense. And it's chartreuse chartreuse. And I mean, this is why, you know, there is a lot of talk out there about the kind of meditative, right. Quality of archery. Right. And, um, that, uh, that certainly is pretty intriguing um, and it makes a ton of sense to me, right? Calming yourself, quieting yourself um, to be able to shoot straight. Um, yeah. Um, pretty cool. Pretty cool. I don't know. Um, it's, a never, I, it's a great hobby. and It's a great hobby. You don't need that much space and it's not expensive and it's not dangerous. Just, you know, once you learn how to do it in a safe way. Well, Paul, it's uh, it's almost one a.m. in my neck of the woods, and uh, that means eleven, 11 p.m. Here. out I, there in Alaska. I've got to um, cut meat. I've got to <laughs> cut up a deer tonight. Tonight, you're doing that. I'll tonight? go cut for a little bit. Yeah, I'll go cut for a little bit. I got to get a bunch of cutting done before I go to Kotzebue. I've got I've got 
two deer hanging out there that need to get cut up and the temperature just got pretty low. So I don't, I want to cut it up before it freezes. Yeah. Wow. Well, all the more reason I appreciate the conversation tonight and, uh, yeah, man, always good to connect. And <laughs> I love hearing you. <laughs> I don't know whether you're talking about best practices around a heli or talking about bows and or arrows. Um, pr- pretty, pretty fun to hear this stuff. So yeah, appreciate you sharing it all with us. Uh, that's fun. I enjoy talking about this stuff. It's a, it's a lifelong passion. Yeah. For, well, that seems evident. So, well, hey man, appreciate it. Uh, go do your thing. And uh, both Thank of you. us should probably get some sleep tonight at some point. So yeah, let's Sounds go good. do that too. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Paul for another great conversation. And just a reminder, you can catch the broader conversation that I had with Paul earlier this week over on our Blister podcast. And again, we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes of this episode. I also want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode And thanks to all of you for listening. And if you are enjoying these crafted conversations, then we would very much appreciate it if you would take 60 seconds to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And that will allow us to keep this whole crafted enterprise going and growing. Thanks in advance for that. We really, really do appreciate it. And we will talk to you again real soon.